Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for our opportunity to gather together to learn more about your word. We do pray as we look at your magnificent trinity, who you are as God, that you'd give us clarity of thought and help prepare us for the possible Jehovah Witness or whomever may have questions about who you are, God. I also pray for Bob in the sermon. We pray, Lord, that we would have understanding from 1 Corinthians. Help us to think well in that deep, that deep section, Lord. Give us clarity so that we could persevere to that day. You come for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody here. Today I'm going to be talking about the Trinity. We're going to be hopefully preparing you for the possible Jehovah Witness or Mormon or a Muslim perhaps that may show up at the doorstep or maybe you are going to witness to them. The reason I wanted to hit the Trinity today and not get into Proverbs is I promised that I would give you an assignment prior to doing Proverbs, so I'll hand that out, and Lord willing, we'll be able to do that next week. So I'll hand that out at the end of the session. I also mentioned the Trinity last week in the sermon that we gave in Matthew chapter 3, where we saw all three members of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism. And so that's why I wanted to hit that. It's been a while, and oftentimes, remember, the cults are going to distort either the Trinity or the person and work of Christ, and most often they distort both. Um, Also, false religions like Islam, remember they claim that you and I as Christians don't have one God in three persons, but rather they try to claim that you and I believe in three different gods. And so you and I have to be able to thwart and refute these wayward thinkers. Now, I want to begin by talking about the truth as to who God is in the Trinity. So I'm going to define the Trinity for you. First thing we have to remember that is that there is only one God. And throughout the, both the Old and the New Testament, the Bible is fiercely monotheistic. It's, there's one God, the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the only God. But with that, this one God is in three persons. There are three persons within the one Godhead. Oftentimes you will hear that that is a contradiction, especially by Muslims who say, well, you believe in one God and three gods at the same time. We do not. The way it would be a contradiction is if we believed in one God and three gods, but we don't. We believe in one God and three persons. One of my favorite analogies to use is we have one government with three branches. Okay, now, any analogy you have with humanity being related to God is going to fall short because God is different than anything in creation. However, think about if someone said, well, you believe that the legislative branch is government, the judicial branch is government, and the executive branch is government, therefore you have three governments. Well, you would rightly say, no, we have one government in three branches, and they all have different roles. Now, the way that analogy breaks down, of course, is God, in his essence, the three in one, all three members of the Trinity are equal. And that's the third part that we have to be convinced of, that each person in the Trinity is eternal, of the same essence, yet distinct from the others. So the Son and the Father are identical in their essence, yet they are distinct persons. The same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. What makes up the Father, His essence, His ontological essence, is identical to the Holy Spirit. Okay? So one way of thinking about it 
and this may help some confusion, is think about ontological sameness. Does everyone know what ontological means? It means being. Ontos or ontos in the, the Greek. It just simply has to do with being. So in their being, there is identical sameness in all three members of the Trinity. However, when we see the plan of redemption, there is what we call an economic difference. Now, what do we mean by economic difference? How many in here have ever heard of economic subordination? I know Bob has. But economic subordination within the Trinity, that's where we define all three members of the Trinity as having equalness in their essence. However, they function differently in our salvation. There are different roles that the members of the Trinity have. Uh, remember last week I talked about how, or maybe it was two weeks ago, the Father planned, Jesus carries out the plan, the Holy Spirit applies the plan to our lives by bringing us to faith in Christ. So there are three different roles within the Trinity. And there is a subordination, even though they're all equal, in the economy of redemption, there is a subordination of the Son, for example, to the Father. And I want you to see that. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John 14, 18. John 14, 18. We'll look at this economic subordination. The reason this is important is these are passages that will be abused by the cultists like the Jehovah Witness who will say to you, hey, wait a minute, if Jesus is less than the Father, therefore he must not be God. Well, let's, well let me pull up my pointer. Again, we're going to distinguish between ontological sameness, they're identical in their being, but they're different in their role. And that's what Jesus is getting at in John 14, 18. Notice John 14, 18. Jesus said, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have, reject, you would have re- rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Does everyone see that phrase at the end of the verse, the Father is greater than I? The, oh, I'm sorry. Am I in the wrong verse? Well, can someone find that? <laughs> I must have hit the wrong button there. Does anyone know which that is? I want to make sure I get it corrected right away. Uh, the Father is greater than I. Oh, 28. I had the wrong number. I put 18. So 1428. The Father is greater than I. So the Jehovah Witness, he will pick up on that and he will say clearly, the Son is not equal to God. So what you and I have to do is to reply to say, well, no, they are ontologically, that is in their being, the same, but in their role, the Son is subordinating himself to the Father. By the way, this, I think, has ramifications all for, also for the role between men and women. Oftentimes you hear today in feminist circles that unless men and women have identical roles, they cannot be equal. Well, that's not the way it is in the Trinity. In the Trinity, God himself, there are different roles in salvation, and yet there's complete equality. So I want you to think about how odd it would be, I think, for us to hear that Christ would complain that because he has a different role, 
He's not equal with the Father. Well, he never does that, does he? He humbled himself for our salvation and he became a man. And so if the Trinity can humble itself, one of the members, two of the members, how much more should humanity be willing to do so as well? I see that Norm's got a comment or a question. Uh, in relation to role, the different roles that the members of the Godhead hold, in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Is that talking about something about different roles, that, like fellowship is more associated with the Holy Spirit and grace more associated with Christ? Or it, it, you know, I, I wouldn't think that that passage in particular, Norm, would be used to show the distinction yeah. between the roles, yeah. um, because obviously each of those is true. Um, in other words, Christ dispenses grace, the Holy Spirit does as well. Yeah. I think it's, in some sense, Paul is just stylistically talking about the, the, the God that we have that saved us. And yeah. um, so he's just using things that are true of each of them, but assigning just for stylistic purposes, grace with the Father, and um, what was it, the fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's exactly. Right. So that doesn't mean we don't have fellowship with Christ. Right. And it doesn't mean right. we don't have fellowship with the Father. So I think that that's more of that idea, stylistically, he's just doing that. Yeah. But that would be true of each one of the members of yeah. the Trinity. I think, though, where we do see it is, for example, where Jesus is in the garden, and he prays, um, Father, if it be your will, you know, take this from me, but nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yeah. Right? So he's submitting himself there to a role that he had chosen and that was chosen for him before the foundation of the world in, in some sense, no matter what God is doing, I think all the members are somehow involved. And You're right. We get in trouble if we try to divide That's right. it up too, too much, I think. Yeah, okay. absolutely. No, you're right. You're right there. The one thing we want to avoid, of course, is there was a heresy in the early 2nd century where they tried to claim that the father was the one who actually died. And um, no, we want to affirm it was the son who died on our behalf, who truly became man, and uh, truly God, truly man. So yeah, there are different roles, but we want to hold on to the idea that there is identity and equality in their essence. Now, I want to go on to just prove that there's just one God, and we see that both in the Old and the New Testament. One of the most famous passages most of you have heard of is the famous Shema. Uh, In Hebrew, I think it should be pronounced Shema, the way I read Hebrew, but anyway, most people have heard it Shema. That's where in Deuteronomy 6.4 it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now I want you to first of all notice the term hear there. That's an imperative command in the Hebrew. And what's interesting is the way hear is used as a command means more than just hearing a sound, but implied is that you hear with belief. Okay, so when it says hear, O Israel, it doesn't simply say, hey, listen up, you may want to take note of this. No, it's hear this and believe it. This is the call to believe. One place you see that's very important is in John 10, 26 through 27. Remember in John 10, 26, Jesus says, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Then he says in the very next verse, my sheep hear my voice. Now, when he says hear my voice, is he simply saying that 
the believer mystically hears this still small voice. No, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying is his people believe. And so he's using hearing synonymously with believe. You could say, my sheep believe. All right? And so he gives them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's the idea. So that's what's implied here is hearing with belief. Notice here it says the Lord is our God. Remember the Lord, all caps, that is Yahweh. That's his covenant name. So recall back in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 14, remember God answers the question from Moses, who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? And he says, I am. That is actually in Hebrew, it's, it sounds like a karate chop. It's actually a verb, hayah. But we would translate it Yahweh. It's actually a yiktol verb. And it is, I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. And so rooted in the name of God is his self-existence, the aseity of God, the fact that he is eternal, never any beginning, never any end, that he always is who he is. And that's rooted in the covenant name that God gave to Moses. Okay? Now also notice the Lord is one. The term there, akath, in Hebrew means just that. There's only one God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God that there will ever be. He is the creator. And so, yes, there is one God revealed in the scriptures. Now, the New Testament affirms the same thing. First Timothy 1.17 Paul said, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice this term eternal. You'll sometimes see this used in other contexts, but eternal, the, um, that's where we get our term aeon or eon. We might use that in English. It, uh, remember, eternal technically means no beginning and no end. So only God is eternal. You and I, we say that we have eternal life, but technically we have everlasting life, life without end, but we had a point of beginning, that we were created. We are, the only person who's technically without beginning, eternal in that way, is the creator. So yes, we have everlasting life. The other thing I want to point out is immortal. The term here in the Greek has to do with not subject to decay or death. And so that is unique, of course, to God. Everything else is trending towards decay, but not the one God. Notice he's invisible. Remember, the Bible declares that everything that is visible was created by God who is invisible in his essence. Notice, again, you have monos here, the only God. He's the only God, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's one God. Now, what I want to show you then is though we have one God. Oh, I'm sorry, um, Tom, yes. We, is that sh- uh, Shema, is that yeah. oneness? A Shema means to hear. It's a command to hear or listen. And so my point in that, Tom, is when you see that, like in Deuteronomy 6.4, it's more than just hearing. Um, it's hearing with belief. That would be the idea that I would have behind it. Um, I say that because a lot of times when I say it to my son, hey, listen up. I just want him to do what I want him to do. I guess you could say that's part of Shema here. But the idea is hearing with belief. That's the idea behind that command. And that's why we see it's so important when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They're hearing not just the sound, 
Yeah, but they're hearing with belief. So I want to show, yeah, Brian. Real then we quick. got one back there with Eric. Oh, okay. Real quick, in the, in the Hebrew, it's Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. So if you yeah. look at that verse up uh, uh, there, you can see the, the, the translation. Now, in, in like you mentioned, in synagogues, but also in Hebrew school from yeah. Liberia, this is pounded into the Jewish children, okay? And it, it, it's said repetitively and repetitively. Sure. Uh, when, when you first get to Hebrew school, that, that's like the Pledge of Allegiance in a way. Uh, sure, okay? sure, so, yeah. And, and not that that leads, a lot of kids move away from the uh, Hebrew faith, so it, it's not that's going to uh, help you, but it's ingrained sure. in, in their heads. Yeah, so it's critical, and you learned that as a kid, didn't you? Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's really helpful. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, uh, on, I think we really have to think about that Deuteronomy 6.4. And I can tell you this, if you stand around a group of 10 Muslims and try to talk to the, them about the Trinity, you know, you, you get a lesson very quickly as to how urgent this is. So sure. in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is one Okay, now that sounds like there's only one person. That's not what that word means. I've got a translation note in my Bible yeah. that uh, that says that the same word is used in Genesis two twenty four, which states that the the man and the woman were of one flesh. So, I, I want to really emphasize for everybody that's listening. It's really important that really uh, to say here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. It's really a better translation might, and I, I shouldn't, I, I'm not a theologian, so I shouldn't be taking pot shots at translations here, but uh, it's, it's like, rather than the Lord is one, they're, they're, the Lord is the only God. Sure. I think that's a better way to render it. It doesn't yeah. mean that there's only one person, okay? Does yeah, that make the, sense? Yeah, exactly. You're talking about unification. You're talking about identity. Um, yeah, you know, it, the difficulty, Eric, with it is so many times um, it does, like, for example, the same will be used on day one of creation. And so it's not day two or day three. or day, It's not the idea of unified or coming together, um, but it is one. It's the, just the first day. So what's interesting, in my opinion, I think we have to look at the context or the rest of the Old Testament to start seeing the Trinity. And what's interesting is I do think that we see the Trinity in some passages. One passage that we don't have to guess at is Psalm 110.1. And the reason we don't have to guess at that one is because the Lord Jesus said it's Trinitarian. (laughs) Isn't that great? So, Bob, remember um, a few years ago you said when Jesus gives us the interpretation, it's the right one? Yeah. (laughs) It's a good hermeneutic rule. I have a question. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Sometimes um, you can refer to the I am sayings that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. Yeah. Uh, and there's quite a few of them. Right. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Is that a claim of deity or are we reading too much into that? No, I, I think it is. In fact, we're going to come to that, the John 8:58. I think you're right, Bob. I think it is. And it's, the reason why is it's so, um, it's so overt. In so many passages, he's being deliberate by linking himself to the I am revealed in Exodus chapter 3. That's what I think, too. And then the other thing is the difference between listening and hearing is very, very important. Yes. And so if an example of that would be in John 6, where my sheep hear my voice, or John 10. Yeah. 
Well, a lot of people heard that and then wouldn't listen to him anymore. Right. They left. Yeah. That happened in John 6 where there was an analogy between Moses gave us bread. What are you going to give us? Right. Well, obviously everybody hears it. Yeah. So there's a difference between audibly hearing words through your ears and taking it to heart and believing. Amen. And they obviously all heard because a bunch of people left and they wouldn't ever listen to him again. Right. And that is very important. One of the main things we get in feedback is that, well, if you believe that only some people are saved, then you must be one of those Calvinists. So I want to listen to anything more you say. Right. So we don't. Li- uh, I don't care about John Calvin, but we better l- learn what the Bible. That if we get it accurately, right? We don't know who the sheep are, but they're out there. If we preach the the Bible Amen. and the gospel, they will hear. And great other point. people will get very angry. They heard, right. but they don't like it, so they leave. That's a great point, and you're right, Bob. That's a great analogy of the John six because they heard exactly what Jesus was saying, and they got angry and they left. And that's remember at the end of John six. That, remember, it's a long chapter. There's like 78 uh, verses or something. So just a huge amount of verses in that chapter. But at the very end... You're going to leave too? Yeah, exactly. So the 12 don't leave. And Jesus asks, are you going to leave too? Remember, that's where Peter says, where else should we go? For you're the ones with the words of eternal life. So they heard with faith. The others, as Bob is pointing out, heard what Jesus was saying, but they didn't believe. And that's a good analogy between hearing with faith and not hearing with faith. So hearing... In Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4 implies that you hear with faith. That's the idea. Now, this idea of one God in the Old Testament, we do see some passages that talk about the one God in three persons. And one of them that's very prolific is found in Psalm 110.1. You'll often hear Bob and I say, this is the most often quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110.1 is quoted more often in the New than any other verse. Um, Now, notice at the very beginning, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. If you look in the Hebrew, it's set off um, in the beginning, and it literally is Yahweh, and then there's a Naum, made an utterance to my Adonai. That's That's how it would be rendered. So, Yahweh made an utterance to my Adonai. And what's the utterance that he made to my Lord? He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, why is that so significant? Because you have communication between Yahweh and Adonai. In fact, notice the my. That is a first person singular pronominal suffix. And so why is that important? Because it's not just any Adonai or Lord. It's David's Lord. So David is talking about a communication between Yahweh and his Lord, the Lord of David. Now, why is that so particularly powerful? Think about when David is living, of all the nations of the earth, what is the pinnacle of all the nations Israel is? In fact, remember in Exodus 4.22, they're regarded as God's firstborn son. So there's no higher nation than Israel. And King David is at the pinnacle, that is, he is the king over Israel. You can't get any higher authority in Israel than King David. So in essence, there is no higher authority on earth in the human realm than King David. But nonetheless, he is talking about his Lord. There's communication between Yahweh 
in his Lord. And so this is Trinitarian. This is communication within the Trinity. Now turn your Bibles. I want to show you the wider context of, we'll just go Psalm 110, 1 through 4. Because I want you to see how this all relates to Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to read the whole Psalm, but we'll do the first four verses to show you a little bit more context. It's a great passage that you can point to with cultists and those engaged in false religion. So again, Psalm 110.1 already proves the Trinity, and I'll show you Jesus, how he handled the text in a minute. But I want you to notice Psalm 110.1 through 4, the entire promise. That here, the Messiah is going to be sitting, that's who the Adonai is, at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, so until it's time to rule. That's what we find out. So sure enough, Jesus is at the right hand of God, the position of power and authority until it's time for him to reign and rule, and he comes back and he sets up his kingdom. But until that time, he sits at the right hand of God. That's where he ascended to. But I want you to see the very next verse. I hope you've turned to Psalm 110. We'll look at verse 2. Notice it says, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter, that's the right to rule, from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay, now Zion... Let's stop there for a moment. Where is Zion? Well, and technically, there's a Zion in heaven. We know Paul alludes to the heavenly Zion in Romans eleven twenty six, But more than likely, David's not talking about that. He's writing about the earthly Zion. So this is a passage that strongly suggests that this Messiah is going to be reigning on the earth. And where is he going to be reigning from? He's going to be reigning from Zion. That's where he's going to be reigning from. That's going to happen one day. Notice verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. That's because of what the Spirit does. They brings them to faith. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth as to you as the dew. Stop there. Remember, dew in the ancient Near East was considered life-giving. Why? Because sometimes it was the only water they had. Dew was very important to the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. Notice verse 4. It says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. So now here's what he's sworn to Adonai, the Lord of David, which is the Messiah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow. Whoever this Lord is of David is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, where did the priests typically come from? What lineage did they have to come from in the Old Testament in order to be a priest? Exactly, the tribe of Levi. Now, was Jesus from the tribe of Levi? No, he's from the tribe of Judah. What's being assigned to him is a different priesthood. Now, why is the Lord promising that it would be in the order of Melchizedek? Remember, this Melchizedek figure comes in Genesis chapter 14. By the way, Melchizedek means Melech Tzedek. Melech is king. Tzedek is righteousness. It's the king of righteousness. And remember, you can read about this, by the way, in Hebrews chapter 5 through 7. The point that the writer of Hebrews makes regarding Melchizedek is that as an analogy, he had no beginning and no end. That is, that there was no genealogy to him. And so one of the points the writer of Hebrews makes is, well, wait a minute, all of these other priests that belonged to Levi and Aaron in that lineage, they kept dying off. And so you had to have a continual priesthood and they had to keep doing their sacrifices over and over and over. But Jesus Christ, because he's in the order of Melchizedek, he's without beginning and without end, he's eternal. 
And so you have this eternal priest who's never going to perish. He's never going to wear out. And he's the one who didn't sacrifice just a bull or a lamb, but himself, as Bob pointed out at the, the funeral this past Thursday, he did it once and for all. Once and for all. So that's the significance of him being in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Yes, Brian. I see the Father and the Son in Psalm 110, but could you point out, is verse 3 where the Holy Spirit, is that what you said? You know, um, no, I, I'm not claiming that it's, it's there. I'm saying oh. that that will happen one day where God's people will be obedient, yeah. where, they will, where he says um, they will freely volunteer in the day of your power. And when we unpack the rest of Scripture, we find out that's because he's poured out, his, as it says in Zechariah 12.10, his spirit of supplication upon them. But I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is there, but you do see two members of the Trinity there. Yes, Dan. Um, I, I, I remember uh, hearing a message from MacArthur about um, that verse 3 of this one where your people, my, my version says, shall be volunteers in the day of your power. But yeah. he, used, he used that in a, um, his Doctrine of Election series. Yeah. He used that. Is that. Would you say that that's something valid where um, the Holy Spirit, we, we, the Holy Spirit um, affects us in such a way we hear the Word of God and we, we believe at that moment and that's, it changes us into, you know, Oh, well, here it says volunteer, but what was what was yours? What yeah, is, exactly. Yours the says, same thing. Same thing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's the power of the Spirit that enables that. Um, we see that in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where God's Spirit gives a new heart. Um, you see it in Ezekiel 36, where God will give them a new heart, and it's always by His Spirit. And so that way people are going to believe from the heart. Remember, Paul says, not from the written code. Um, so his distinction is between what's rote and what's genuine. Right. Uh, what's rote is by those who are natural, unregenerate sinners. But as soon as you have a circumcised heart by the Spirit, then you can freely do and voluntarily do for God what you could, you could not do prior to conversion. And one good passage to think about in that regard, and I'm glad you brought this up, is Romans 8.8. 8. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we know from Hebrews, the only way you can please God is by faith. So if it's impossible to please God without faith, then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, those who are in the flesh, therefore, can't believe. The implication in Romans 8 is the Spirit does for us what the law couldn't do. The law, when it interacted, that's his point in Romans 7, condemned us because our sinful nature co-opted the law and it was coerced by the law to sin. Not that the law is bad, but it doesn't mix with our nature. But the Spirit enabled us to believe. So I think you're exactly right. I think it's about election. Ultimately, if we unpack that, the, the people of God are those who are regenerated by the Spirit. And therefore, they can freely do for God what they could never do in their unregenerate state. So yeah, that's, that, I think you're exactly right, Dan. Yeah, so this Melchizedek figure is very important. So does everyone see that this, of course, is about the Messiah? There's no question about that. I want you to see how Jesus himself applied to this passage. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 22. In fact, if the cultist comes to the door, this is what I would turn to. I would just turn right to Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. And remember, this is where Jesus is arguing with those rascals, those Pharisees, and they think that they can stump them. They never do. But he puts out a, a question that does stump them. 
They have no answer. And what he does is a good debater. Jesus puts them in a quandary where they either say they don't know, therefore they're ignorant. But if they happen to know the answer, it proves that he's the Messiah. He's, the, he's in fact God. <laughs> so they either say we're dumb or you're Christ. <laughs> Not a very good position if you want to deny Christ, right? So that's what Jesus does to him. So that's Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He puts them on the hot seat. Notice verse 42. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So they said to him, these are the Pharisees, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, now notice verse 44. This is Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Verse 45, now Jesus comments on it. Jesus said, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. <laughs> that wrecked the whole debate right there. That was a stumper. What's so beautiful is Jesus is showing that the only way there can be a Lord of David, that is that there has to be the, the Messiah is being referred to by Yahweh. There's communication between Yahweh, first person the Trinity, and the second person the Trinity. And what's so neat is throughout the book of Isaiah, we see that this is true regarding who the Messiah would be. Remember Isaiah 11.1, 1, the Messiah is going to be a man who comes from David, the shoot of Jesse, Isaiah 11.10, he is going to be the root of Jesse. And the question is, how can one individual come from David and yet be the source of David? Remember, Jesse was David's father. So when you unpack that, it's, you're kind of left with a conundrum if you're a Jew living in the year 715 B.C. How is this one Messiah come from David and yet is the source of David? And by the way, you saw it earlier in Genesis, or excuse me, not Genesis, Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. Remember, unto us a son is given, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Wait, a son is called Mighty God? El Gabor? So this is the conundrum that we see, and it's, it's revealed in the Scriptures. The Messiah really was being taught is truly God and truly man. So here's the point. I just want you to see that Jesus himself affirms for us that this is Trinitarian language between the Father and the Father and himself the son. Jesus himself says it is. <laughs> so therefore, we've got a good... Now, let me show you another passage I think is Trinitarian. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 48.16. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 48.16. This is another one you may want to use. Isaiah 48.16. As you're turning to this, there's a passage all about how God himself would superintend the process of Cyrus being used by God, remember the, the Medo-Persian ruler, to bring the Israelites out of Babylonian captivity. And so I believe the second person of the, the Trinity, the Son, is speaking. And he's talking about how he's going to superintend this process. That he is the one who will bring this about. So notice Isaiah forty-eight sixteen. He says, come near to me, listen to this. Again, this idea of hear. From the first, I have not spoken in secret... From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God, there's Yahweh, 
has sent me, that's the suffering servant, and his spirit. So notice you have the Father, that's the Lord God, you have Yahweh, has sent me the servant of, Yah- of, the servant of Yahweh, which is the Messiah, the Son, and his spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. And so there's a passage, I think, that's a clear reference to the Trinity. And the reason why I think it fits the context very nicely is God, again, is the one who ensures that Cyrus will bring the Israelites out. It's a solemn pledge that God himself would bring about. And sure enough, in 539 B.C., that happened just as God promised it would. That Cyrus, the Medo-Persian ruler, let the Israelites go. Let me show you another one. Now, this next one, this is one I just want you to think about. I'm not even... I'm not even sure where I land on it yet. I've been wrestling with it for years, but it's intriguing to me. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah 12.10. I just want you to be aware of this. Some of you probably have read this and been curious yourself. Zechariah 12.10. Please turn your Bibles there. Zechariah 12.10. What's that? Give us about five minutes to find it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I know it takes a while, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Zechariah is right before Malachi at the very end of the Old Testament. Yeah, just before Malachi. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Now remember, this passage is ultimately going to be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming. However, it was partially fulfilled according to John 19.37. The Jews did look upon the one whom they pierced. It's cited that far... But John doesn't cite it any further. Why? Because the rest of it won't be fulfilled until his second advent. But notice what it says, Zechariah 12.10, The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Stop there. The Holy Spirit, which will be poured out, is referred to as the spirit of grace and supplication. Grace, remember, is God's unmerited favor. So now God's unmerited favor will come to Israel, and supplication is the result of that, that Israel will finally cry out to him. That's the idea. Now notice the purpose statement. Notice the so that. Here's what it will lead to, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Does everyone see where it says, They will look on me whom, notice the me whom they've pierced. You have a me, but then all of a sudden it switches from first person singular and says, and they will mourn for him. It switches to third person singular. Okay, does everyone see that? I think that you may have some Trinitarian language going on here. A shifting between the father and the son, perhaps. Yes, Paul. Tell me if I'm off base here, but when it says grace and supplication, grace, unmerited favor, and supplication, I think of repentance right away. Exactly. Exactly right. That's exactly the whole point of the text. And in fact, that's the type of mourning that they will do. I think you're exactly right. It brings them to repentance. And that's the point. So is Israel repentant now? Nope. Hard heart. Why? Because God hasn't poured out his spirit of grace and supplication. But in the 70th week of Daniel... Specifically in the last three and a half years, he will bring them to faith in mass as a nation. And so then they will turn to Messiah. And that's, remember, where they're in that wilderness the final time? And they have an Elijah-like prophet 
So the Elijah-like prophet meets the people of Israel in the wilderness, that is John the Baptist, at Christ's first coming, but they miss, they miss Christ. The vast majority of them don't believe. So the whole thing happens again in the 70th week. You have an Elijah-like prophet that comes on the scene. The people are led out into the wilderness a final time for the last three and a half years. This time they believe. This time in the wilderness they get it right, just as Hosea 2.14 predicted they would, that one day the wilderness wandering would be a sweet time where they would trust in the Lord. They missed it the first time. They even missed it at Christ's first advent, but they're going to get it at the second advent. And that's when this spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out. So, well said. It's going to bring them to repentance. Okay, so you see in the Old Testament that the Trinity certainly was there. It is taught. Now, I'm going to turn to the New Testament, the passage that we looked at last week. This is a passage that I would use if you have someone who denies the Trinity, whether, again, to be um, perhaps a Jehovah Witness or even a Mormon. This is a great passage that you could turn to. Matthew 3, 16 through 17 Let's read it again and just see that all three members of the Trinity are here. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up. Remember the term stop there, came up on a bino? So he's coming up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending. That's katabino. He's descending like a dove, you could say. It's a simile or as a dove and lighting on him. Uh, remember, I like the rendering, literally, he comes upon him, a reference to Isaiah 42, 1, and Isaiah 11, 2. It said, he came upon him, verse 17, and behold, a voice out of the heavens, here's the Father, said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So notice you have three distinct persons of the Trinity. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. The Father is heard but not seen. The Spirit is seen but not heard. Jesus, the fullest revelation of God, is both seen and heard. In fact, you can touch him. Why? Because he's truly God, but he condescended himself and became truly man. All right? Now, what's interesting is I want you to focus on this last line where the Heavenly Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Notice the subject-object distinction. The Lord is well pleased, I. And who is he pleased It's the Son. Here you have a direct object, and here you have the subject, I, in whom I am well pleased. So you have a subject-object distinction between the Father and the Son. They cannot be the same person. Does everyone follow that? You can't have the Father be the subject and also the object. So that refutes this idea that you just have one God who changes costumes. Well, sometimes he has the Father costume on, and sometimes he has the Son costume on. Sometimes he puts the Holy Spirit costume on. One God and one person who just changes costumes. That's not what's being stated here. The Son is coming up out of the water. The Spirit is descending. That can't be the same person. Then you have a subject-object distinction between the Father and the Son. No, this is devastating. And the only reason people won't believe the Trinity is being taught here is because they don't like it. They don't want to see the obvious. But it is being taught clearly here in Matthew 3, 16 through 17. Okay, so a great passage to bring up with those who deny the Trinity if, if at least they hold to the authority of the Bible. Okay, let's go on to the personality of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes cultists will claim 
like the Jehovah Witnesses, that the Holy Spirit is merely a force that emanates from God. And what I'm going to show you is a way that you can clearly argue, no, the Holy Spirit isn't some force. It must be a, he is a person. He is a person who has personality, the third person of the Trinity. One of the passages that clearly teaches this is John 16, 13. When Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Notice, let's ask ourselves the question, does a force guide? Does a force speak? Does a force hear? And does a force disclose the future? No, but a person does. A person does. So this isn't a force. By the way, Ephesians 4.30, think about this. Can you grieve a force? Anyone ever grieved electricity? <laughs> My old joke, by the way, there's a kind of a rivalry between fixed-wing pilots, pilots that fly airplanes, and those who fly helicopters. My favorite joke about the helicopter guys is we always would say, do you know how a helicopter flies? They're so ugly, the earth rejects them. That's what we would say to them. They're so ugly, the earth rejects them. So they're violating, in a sense, the law of physics there. They're, they're, they're actually insulting the force of gravity. But anyway, that's the only time you can use that. But you can't insult or grieve a force, but you can a person. Notice Ephesians 4.30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. By the way, what does it mean to grieve? It means to sin to do that which is not in keeping with our nature as those who have been called out of this world, who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit literally until the day of redemption. All right, so think about elsewhere. We know that the Holy Spirit loves, Romans 15, 30. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Remember with groanings too deep for words, Romans 8, 27. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. Remember Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Can you lie to a force? Can you lie to... The Bernoulli principle, or to gravity, or to anything. No, you can't lie. You can lie to a person, though. So clearly, these passages show us that the Holy Spirit is indeed the third person of the Trinity. It's not a force, it's a person. Okay, now let's talk about attacks on the Trinity. And by the way, if we don't finish all this, we'll do it next week. But let's talk about the different attacks. I just want you to have kind of some categories to think about how the Trinity has come under attack really since God revealed himself. Um, the first one's called tritheism. I believe this is the attack by the Muslims. They will say to you, wait, you believe in one God and three gods at the same time. No, that's not true. Remember, when it comes to the law of non-contradiction, you have to have the same categories being compared. What do I mean by that? The law of non-contradiction says, if A, then not non-A, at the same time and in the same relationship. So you and I, if we said we have one God and not one God at the same time in the same relationship, that would be a contradiction. But notice we shifted from the category A, one God, to category B in three persons. So it's not in the same relationship. So we have one God in three persons. That's not a violation of the law of non-contradiction. What it is, is it's unique. Just as Jesus is truly God and truly man, there's no contradiction. It's unique. There's no one like him. 
By the way, I'm truly a father to my son, and I'm truly a son to my dad. Is that a contradiction? Must I be two people? No. So Jesus has two natures, truly God, truly man, but it's not a contradiction. The same thing goes with the Trinity. Okay, so most often you'll see this attack by Muslims today. Sabellianism. Sabellianism you'll see oftentimes today with oneness Pentecostals. These are people who believe that you only have one God and one person and he just changes costumes. So yes, they'll say that Jesus is God, but he is the same person as the Father. By the way, John 1, 1 refutes that. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. But notice because the Word was with God, it's not the same person as the Father. Now he's equal because he's God himself, but he was with the Father. So it distinguishes between two persons of the Trinity. So Sabellianism says, no, um, you just take one God and he just switches costumes. Sometimes it's called modalistic monarchianism. Mode means he changes the mode. Monarch is the king. The king sometimes is the father, sometimes the son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. By the way, Sibelius, who started this, there's not a lot of information on him because he died and his materials were wiped out. But you know from those who had to refute him about what he taught. And he was a third century presbyter uh, from the area of Rome. That's probably where he came from, who, who originally taught this. A Unitarianism. This is the idea that there's one God and one person, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. Now, the Unitarians today deny supernaturalism. They reject uh, specific teachings of the Bible regarding not only the Trinity, but the resurrection. These are theological liberals who just don't believe what the Bible says. That's where it is today. But technically, Unitarianism was the belief that you have one God and one person, but Jesus isn't God. That's the difference between that and Sabellianism. Arianism, how many ever heard of the man named Arius, the heretic? I know many of you probably have. Arianism says Jesus is not God, that there was a time that he was created and he came into being. He came about, this Arius, in the 4th century from Alexandria. How many in here have ever heard of Athanasius? Athanasius was the man who refuted him. And it's funny, when you read church history, Athanasius stood for the triune God. Arius was trying to attack the idea of the Trinity. And what they would do is, according to who had power, they would excommunicate the other one. So Athanasius would be in power for a while. He'd be acceptable in Alexandria, and all of a sudden he'd be excommunicated. Then Arius would be excommunicated. Then Athanasius would be... They would just excommunicate each other. Back and forth it went. I think Athanasius was excommunicated like four different times. Now, there was a time when Arius had a really catchy sing-song slogan that almost carried the day in all of Christendom. And this, the slogan was, Bob has talked about this before, Arius had a slogan said, there was a time when he was not. And people would actually sing that. And if you asked the average person on the street, 80% of them believed this slogan. There was a time that he was not. Okay, now where did they get this idea that there was a time that Jesus was not? Well, let me show you what they do because the, the Jehovah Witnesses are going to do the same thing that Arian, Arians did back in the 4th century. That's the one thing you have to know. When it comes to the attack on the Trinity and Jesus Christ, the same heresies are just recycled. So if you can defend yourself against Arianism, you can defend yourself against the Jehovah Witness. That's the idea. So what verses do they distort? 
these Arians and therefore the Jehovah Witnesses? Well, one of them is John 1.14, and I want to show you what this text says so you can refute them. John 1.14, let's see, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Does everyone see and read the phrase only begotten? That's one word in the Greek, monogenes. What the Arians did and what the Jehovah Witnesses do is they'll latch onto that and they'll say, aha, only begotten means that he came about at a point in time, that he was begotten. But that's not what monogenes means. Monogenes does not have to do with Christ coming into existence. The way it should be rendered is that he is the unique one, that he is the one and only, one of a kind. Now, let me prove that to you. It's one thing for me to say it, but let me prove it to you that that's exactly how it's used in the scriptures. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 12. Luke chapter 7, verse 12. Please turn your Bibles there. Luke seven twelve. This is about Jesus approaching the gate of the city here in Jerusalem. Or I don't know if it was in Jerusalem. I don't recall the context. But he's coming into the city. And notice there's a very concerned parent. Luke seven twelve. it says, Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. Notice it says, The only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Okay, now, does everyone see the phrase only son? The term only there is monogenes. Now, did the, is the emphasis in the text that this son came about at a point in time? Or is it that he's the one and only? It's that he's the one and only, isn't it? That's exactly how it's used of Jesus Christ. He's the one and only. Yeah, Levon. Can you just spell monograce or whatever? Yeah, monogenes would be, if we were to transliterate that, it would be M-O-N-O. So M-O-N-O. And then G-E-N-E-S. That's Thank what it would you. look like. Yeah, monogenes. Yeah, so monogenes. So he's the unique one. By the way, you see the same idea in Luke 8.42. If you turn your Bibles just ahead one chapter... Here's, remember that Jairus, that synagogue official? He wants healing for his daughter. And just notice Luke 8.42. It said, for he had only, excuse me, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. Notice only, that's monogonase. So again, the emphasis is that she's unique. She's the only one that he has. That's the idea with monogenes in John 1.14. Not that the son came about at a point in time, but that he's the unique one, the only one. That's the idea. Let me show you another one that's often abused by the cultists like the Jehovah Witnesses. Arius abused this text as well. That's Colossians 1.15, where it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I want you to notice this term in red, firstborn. That's the term prototokos. And so from this, the cultists will say, well, look, Jesus came into being. He was born. That means prior to his birth, he did not exist. That's why he was begotten. That's what they'll claim. 
Um, I was telling them about that famous saying, Arius had, there was a time when he was not. And so this would back that saying, right? But prototokos, the firstborn idea, has to do not with the idea of coming into existence, but the idea of having the inheritance rights. Remember in Exodus 4.22, God said regarding Israel that they were his firstborn. Now, did that mean that they were the first nation to ever come about? Nope. Did that mean that, in fact, they came about at a point in time? Well, they did, but that's not the point. The firstborn status meant that they had the inheritance rights of Yahweh, the covenant-giving God. So the one who has the, the inheritance rights of all things is Jesus the Son. That's how it's being used. Okay? So, again, you could turn them to... What I would just turn them to Exodus 4.22 and show them where firstborn is used regarding Israel. And just ask them, why is that important regarding Israel? Does it mean that they came into being at a point in time? Is that the point that God is making? Or is it that they had the inheritance rights? And of course, it's the latter. That's how it's being used here. Yes, Levon. When um, Scripture says that Jesus was the firstborn, does that same word apply? Is that what it yes. specifically means? Just that he was... Yes. Yep. In- so he's the preeminent one. He's the one that has the inheritance rights. So what's beautiful is when you and I trust in him, that firstborn status is applied to us. Therefore, we have the inheritance rights, right? So that's the idea. That's true of Jesus. By the way, there's one more in Colossians. I don't have a slide for this, but turn your Bibles to Colossians 2.9. We'll just finish up on this and we'll... We'll close out, and I'll give you your instructions for Proverbs. Colossians 2.9, please turn your Bibles there. I want to show you how the Jehovah Witnesses specifically distort this passage. Colossians 2.9, I'm going to be reading from the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah Witness Bible, and I'll show you what they do with it. And somebody maybe here can read the correct version even though I, th- I, th- I think I have it memorized. But Colossians 2.9, this is the Jehovah Witness version. It says, It is in him that all the fullness of the divine quality dwells bodily. Okay, does everyone see divine quality? Well, that's, you won't see that. Now, um, Brian, can you read what the English version says instead of divine quality? For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, very good. So the New World Translation is translating a term from the Greek, theotes, which if I were to transliterate that is T-H-E-I-O-T-E-S. The actual term in the Greek does not have the E-I. It has an E-O or omicron. So the term in Greek is T-H-E-O-T-E-S, which has to do, according to Lonida, one of the great lexicons, the state of being God. So what's being affirmed here is not that Jesus has a divine quality, but that he is in fact God. Not just that he has godly character or um, a similarity to God, but the theotes rather than theotes means that he is God. So they deliberately distort that one. Um, by the way, in Colossians 1.16, just one that I want to give to you before you go. Can you read Colossians 1.16, Brian? 
This is one that they're going to abuse as well, the New World Translation. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Very good. So does everyone see or hear by him all things were created? When the Jehovah Witness shows up at your door, if you look at their Bible, the New World Translation, it'll have other in parentheses in the margin. So they read it all other things. Okay? That is not in the Greek text. And so what you can do simply is, I've done this before, ask them, why is your other in brackets? Well, they even have to admit that they're adding it. Now, why would they add other to all things? Because if Christ did create all things, then he's God. But they have to make him the first created being, and then he creates all other things. Well, that's not what the text says, and that's why they're even caught in their own translation by putting other in brackets. So you can point this out in their own Bible and show hey, that's not original. That's why it's in the brackets in your own Bible. Okay? So, dear ones, we'll we'll continue this and finish this next week because we're going to talk more about how to get Christ and his person right in the hypostatic union and how the different cults will abuse that. But let's close in prayer, and then I'll give you your assignment for Proverbs as well. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think well upon who you are from the text of Scripture so that we may contend earnestly for the faith once and for all, handed down to the saints. I pray, Lord, for Bob's sermon today that we would have ears to hear that unto, unto faith, that, Lord, you would make us not just hearers but doers of the word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would persevere until that day you come for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me hand out the assignment that we'll be doing in Proverbs. I got it at my last slide here. Sorry, I, didn't, I guess I didn't get as far as I thought I was going to hear. So we'll be finishing this next week, but this will be your assignment in Proverbs. At some point, we'll be coming to this. Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. And there's just four questions I'm going to a- ask. Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. What does Solomon mean by heart? You know, just heart, H-E-A-R-T. What does he mean by that when he talks about the heart in this passage? Second, why is the believer to always be devoted to grace and truth? In verse 3, why are to we always be devoted to grace and truth? Verse 3. Third, what does it mean to be, quote, wise in your own eyes, unquote? Verse 7. What does it mean to be wise in your own eyes, according to verse 7? And the final one, differentiate between understanding that mankind has and trusting in the Lord, verse 5. Differentiate between the understanding that mankind has and trusting in the Lord. That's verse 5. And that's, that's it. Thanks, everyone.